0: Welcome to Creator Talks, the interview show with comic book writers and artists, plus authors and illustrators. I am your host, Christopher Calloway. On this show, I interview a New York Times best-selling author and Eisner-nominated comic book writer, Chelsea Kane. We talk about her latest work through Image Comics' Maneaters. Her last published comic work was a few years ago for Marvel Comics' Mockingbird and she's back with the same creative team to produce man which comes out September 26th, and it will be an ongoing series. It is part cat people and part handmaid's tale. A mutation and toxoplasmosis causes menstruating women to turn into ferocious killer wildcats, easily provoked and extremely dangerous. As panic spreads and paranoia takes root, the fate of the world rides on the shoulders of one 12-year-old girl. We do talk about the book, but first, Chelsea and I look back and discuss her childhood, being known as the Dead Pet Whisperer, to her fascination with the Green River Killer who was active in her area when she was growing up, and how it led her to write her own novel about a fictitious serial killer, Gretchen Lowell, who made her debut in Chelsea's book, Heartsick. When I conducted this interview, Chelsea and I also talked about her plans for the Vision series through Marvel Comics, which was canceled at the end of last week by the publisher. And so I followed up with Chelsea on her thoughts and feelings about the cancellation of the vision. So here now is my interview with Chelsea Kane, New York Times bestseller and author of Man-Eaters. Here now on Creator Talks. Chelsea, welcome to Creator Talks.
1: Nice to be here.
0: Pleasure to have you. Now, before we get to your comic man-eaters, let's start with some of your interests and how these all led to the series in some way, shape, or form. I'm gonna just pick three things: cats, murder, and comics. Let's start with cats. Are you a cat owner?
1: I am. I live with a cat. I wouldn't say I own her. Um. Well, that's true. Anyone who lives with a cat (laughs) would never describe it that way. Mm -mm. But uh, yeah, I do share a residence with a cat. She is a Manx tortoiseshell. Yeah, she's terrific. She's a great cat.
0: Now, I've owned a cat. Well, my wife had a cat that allowed us to stay in the house. And the cat came with the missus, so that was a package deal. cat had to come along. And they're unique. They're different from dogs. Very different in personality and temperament. If someone was on the fence about getting a cat. Why should they get a cat?
1: Oh, boy. So I'm arguing for the cat. See, I think it depends on the person. Like, obviously, right, there's cat people and there's dog people. We also have dogs. I'm a big dog person as well. Like, I love animals of any kind. And if I weren't married to my husband, he doesn't have many, like, rules hard and fast rules at all but one of his rules is no more than three pets (laughs) and it doesn't matter to him what kind of pets they are but like that's the total three at one time and if it weren't for that our house would be completely filled with animals um (laughs) but if i were to argue for a cat cats just seem um like they have an agenda and i think that's really basic about that (laughs) appeals to me I don't know what it is. I don't know what they're plotting. But they're thinking about something all the time. And and I like that.
0: Yeah, they're not there to please you. They do have their own agenda. No, Dogs are no. different. They just idolize you. Like, no matter what you do, they just, whatever, you know, they just want your attention. The cats, you know, they like you. They'll come by, rub your leg, you know, sit behind you. But they have their own thing going on.
1: Right. So they're unpredictable that way, too. Like, sometimes the cat will be like, oh, I love you. Like, pet my belly. And sometimes the cat will be like and just claw, swipe, and ignore, you know? (laughs) It seems like it has nothing whatsoever to do with my behavior toward the cat. (laughs) It just feels completely random. I'm sure it's not. But I guess I respect cats (laughs) in a different way because of that, because I don't really understand them. I think cats, like women, are a mystery culturally.
0: Well, you know, they do assert themselves. The cat that we used to have, she passed away, but she was a package deal with my wife. Before we got married, when she was dating someone, something the boyfriend did ticked off the cat. I think he might have, like, pushed the cat out of the way or was disrespectful. This
1: is a boyfriend, not you. Not me. Not you. Who knew?
0: Not me. me. Okay. No. So he did something disrespectful for the cat. I don't know what it was, but pushed her away. And the cat, later that day, pooped in his shoes. (laughs) My wife would always say, be nice to the cat or she's going to poop in your shoes. I was like, okay. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. And now we have a dog. And I grew up with, in my family, we had many dogs, many strays that were taken in. So we had at one point like six dogs. So there were a lot of pets in my house. My wife was never allowed to have a dog. She had a cat. She's had two cats in her life, but no dogs. So since we got a dog, she's been ecstatic because she's never had one before. And now she's finding out about the different personalities, cats versus dogs.
1: Right. She's never had a pet who, a pet who loved her back. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Not as affectionately as a dog does. A cat's in her own way. Yeah,
1: they do. But on their terms.
0: On their terms. And when we come back from vacation, you know, you can leave the cat at home with food and a litter box. It would meow at us like it was irritated and just walk away like, where have you been? The dogs, it could be five minutes and they just like freak out. Oh, my God, you're back. And they're jumping all over you. The cat's like, where you been? Where you been? And they just like walk away. But speaking of many pets, growing up as a youth, you were known as the Dead Pet Whisperer. I love that. How did that start? Please tell us about your reputation, how it spread through the neighborhood as the Dead Pet Whisperer.
1: You know, this is one of those things. My main job is writing thrillers. And when I started writing thrillers, people who read my books would always ask me if I had always been that macabre. The question always surprised me because I didn't think of myself really as being any more, I guess, macabre than anybody else. And then the more I would talk, the more I would realize that in fact, maybe not everybody (laughs) had some of the interests that I did. And one of those interests was maintaining a pet cemetery that I started as a kid when I was like seven or eight and curated for many years. And I Buried probably. Oh God, a couple dozen animals (laughs) in our in our yard. From like you know a couple of family pets who died um, to then I I would have these big elaborate ceremonies with these hats. That our landlord's mother had left in a trunk in the back room. (laughs) And they were from the 30s. And so they had all these mails. And I would have these elaborate ceremonies, which attracted kids in the neighborhood and they would participate. And then word got out that, like, if you had a pet that passed away, you know, like I put on a good show and it was a very nice plot. And so kids would start showing up at my house with their pets when they died. And usually, <laughs> like, usually, uh, like, little pets. Like, it's not like they were showing up, like, with their golden retriever in their arms. Right. But, like, you know, like the husks of gerbils that had crawled under radiators. Oh, no. <laughs> or freezer bags of fish, because the fish would die and it would somehow end up in the freezer in a ziplock. You know, months later, some kid would show up with their Ziploc, with their goldfish, wanting a burial. But there was also a chicken. I also... Uh, <sighs> This sounds so, like, now as a parent, (laughs) I'm not so sure about it, but as a kid, like, when I would see an animal, like a roadkill,
0: Mm
1: -hmm. like a bird or anything that was dead at the side of the road, I would beg to take it home and bury it and give it a proper burial. Like right. that was something that was always really like sad for me. Like as it is for any kid and any person, but especially kids. It's so sad. Like when you you know you're driving along and you look out and you see a dead squirrel. And the way that I kind of I guess manifested or worked through that was to sob uncontrollably until my mother stopped the car. Then <laughs> <laughs> <And> I sit <laughs> out and like pick up the dead squirrel and take it home and bury it, you know, in a nice ceremony with hats. So somewhere in Bellingham, Washington, there is a yard full of tiny little skeletons in uh, shoeboxes. And someday somebody <laughs> yeah. will be planting a garden and they will dig that up and they will be so concerned and curious.
0: <laughs> or future archaeologists are just going to be amazed at this pet cemetery. <laughs>
1: Yeah, and I would bury each of them, too, with some little piece of costume jewelry because our landlord's mother also left in that trunk. Oh. <laughs> All this, like old costume jewelry. And so I, like the Egyptians, you know, like mm-hmm. I would I would put like some small item, you know, a brooch or, an, you know, a little charm in the shoebox for the afterlife of, uh, you know, whatever animal had died. There was something, evening gross beaks, which were these little... I guess regular-sized birds um, in Bellingham. I started finding them dead when I would walk to school. And over a couple-week period, uh, I found like nine of them, which is a lot, right? Like I would wrap these dead birds in my coat, <laughs> take them home, and bury them. And I became concerned. I was probably nine. I became really concerned about what I termed the evening grosbeak epidemic. And so I decided <laughs> on the way to school that I was going to knock on every door to, like, ask people if they were using pesticides or, you know, just trying to, like, educate people about the epidemic and get to the bottom of it. So I also had a pet detective agency. Um, so, you know, like, it, it kind of, like, <laughs> aligned a, a couple of my interests, my missions, passions, and I knocked on every single door. Um, on the way to school. And this was like, of course, I didn't think about it, but it was 7 (laughs) a.m. People would answer the door like with a cup of coffee in their robe, and serve this kid uh, with a a passionate speech about the evening gross big epidemic. So that was me, and I would like to apologize to the people between my home and Lowell Elementary School for that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) This uh, conversation seems very timely because yesterday, just yesterday, My wife says to me, I got to talk to you about something. I said, oh, she goes, it's not that bad. But what happened? She goes, well, the dishwasher broke. I said, oh, well, that's under warranty. She said, and Nolan's fish died. I'm like, oh, that's not. The
1: two events weren't related, I hope.
0: (laughs) No, no, not at all. all. It's a mystery. He had one last year. It died, and he was really broken up about it. He got over it fairly quick, but it's like, do you want to talk about it? no. You want to be alone yes i'm like oh poor kids we're like oh how are we going to break this to him we're going to tell him later on that day okay okay so i go out i come home and i said where's the fish my wife said "Uh, i flushed it It it's beginning to stink i said i said you flushed it and i was serious now have you seen ozark before on netflix i did a marty weddy bird thing so my wife got my dry humor i said we gotta talk about things like this you gotta tell me this is happening you just can't make unilateral decisions like that. <laughs> and she's like, I said, I said that doesn't show respect to the fish. We got to bury, we got to bury Blue with anchovy out back. What are you going to tell Nolan? Oh he God. went to flush in New York. I mean, what are you going to do? She's like, well, I can't get him now. I said, I just okay, okay. He's buried then. We'll tell him he's buried. I said, all right. Well, we'll be on the same page. But in the future, we got to do this right. You just can't, you know, can't flush it. <laughs> I was, I was serious. <laughs>
1: I think that is how the fish end up in the ziplocs in the freezer.
0: Yeah, <laughs> that's what well, I was thinking. <laughs> right. Why not a ziploc? Yeah, why not go, the freezer? Right? Or
1: right Store the body, <laughs> and then at some yeah future point when the ground thaws, <laughs> you have a burial. Absolutely. That's tough, man. Fish. Are, like, are you going to replace
0: it? But I told my son we're waiting for the you know uh, you know the upset. He's like, can I get another one? Not even bothered. This has only been a year's difference. I'm like, um, yeah, I mean, let's give it some time. Can we get it tomorrow. I'm like, let's give it a little more time. But yeah, sure. So he's fine. We'll get another one. But like, I don't know what these like beta fish. I'm like, what happens? In, it's like been like a year and they're gone. I'm like, the tank was perfectly clean. There was no chemicals in it. We use spring water, no chlorinated water. And I don't know what happened. It's a mystery. <laughs> what do you think it is?
1: <laughs> do you think it's a serial killer? <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, I don't know.
1: No. It's two, you
0: lost two. <laughs> I know it looks really weird. Let's talk about murder, not actual murder, <laughs> but but about the, how that ties into some of your books. I want to share something else with you. This is just off the topic, but it, it was it drives me to murder, not actual murder, but just it drives me nuts. I go to the almost said it. <laughs> I go to the gym. <laughs> I don't want to tip off which one it is, and I, I, I'm all about you know respect etiquette. Yeah, you talk about proper burial of fish and pets. Well, there's gym rules, right? You're a moral man. Well, you know, it's like it's not your bathroom, okay? It's shared, and people go in. It drives me nuts. They spread their stuff out. There's no room for you to get changed. Like this one, a square foot. Well, I saw a person. No kidding, they were shaving their head in the bathroom. Now, I don't mean grooming a close crop. This person decided it was time to shave all of their hair off and decided to do it in the locker room. That was so bizarre. I've seen people, like, you know, shaving, brushing. With somebody
1: with with a head head hair. Yes, yes.
0: I mean, not like they have, like, they're just shaving a shaved head, like, grooming like you would shaving a beard. It was like they were deciding a lifestyle change. I'm going to take all my hair off. (laughs) It was bizarre. Do
1: you think he lost a bet?
0: (laughs) I don't know, but it was the weirdest thing. And then just the other day, I sat down on one of the machines to work out, and someone left a carnation coffee creamer container where the water bottle would go.
1: I wanted you to stop after carnation. I love the idea. on <laughs> And there being a single red
0: carnation. No. Somebody had their creamer sitting there. I'm like, you're obviously not taking your workout very seriously. <laughs> But I digress. I just thought I'd share that because it sometimes drives me to want to commit murder.
1: Well, I will tell you, one of the most excellent things about being a thriller writer is that I get to murder people on the page. Mm-hmm. So, like, I actually, it helps me move through the world in that way, right? So, like, if I am stuck in traffic or somebody cuts me off or just those moments in life where you're like, oh, I could be, you know, where you're just filled with, like, hatred for the state of humanity, I think to myself, I'm going to go home and I'm going to murder somebody in a book. And I do. And I get all of that out and everything is fine. It's very therapeutic.
0: It's cathartic for you.
1: Quite. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like then the thriller writers I know, honestly, like the darker, the writing, the sort of happier, the person, strangely, like thriller yeah. writers are some of the like most lighthearted, easygoing people you'll ever want to meet.
0: Yes. I found out to be the case with Vince Gilligan, who wrote Breaking Bad, and I would Uh see him interviewed, and it's like, he seems so normal and so nice, and the ideas are just so twisted. Yeah. I've always found that. Now, one of the first murder cases that caught your attention, and this was local to you, which would scare me to death, was the Green River Killer.
1: Yeah, the Green River Killer. This is a serial killer who um, most people outside of the Pacific Northwest have not heard of, and yet... He is the most prolific serial killer uh, in the United States in terms of actual pleading guilty to a number of murders. I think he pled guilty to 49 murders. He certainly killed more people than that, but like that's what they have him pled at. He, when I was 10 years old, they found uh, his first three victims and he was at large for 20 years. So my whole growing up, you know, every year or two, they would find another victim, and there was a big task force that uh, was assigned to hunt him, and this was just kind of—I of I just the environment of my upbringing. It's so strange, like Bellingham, which is a really, despite its pet cemeteries, <laughs> a really bucolic, lovely town. Like it's quite beautiful, and there's a college there, and it's right on the bay, and there's mountains, and uh, it is also full of serial killers (laughs) and I don't know why I think it's maybe because it's so close to Canada right it's kind of like there are a lot of people who just are on their way out big people on the fringes but certainly when I was growing up in the Pacific Northwest there were a lot of serial killers and the Green River Killer was one um, I think lodged himself in my imagination because nobody knew who he was for so long and he killed a lot of young women most of whom were prostitutes. Some of them were really young, you know, like 16, 17, 18 years old. And to me, as a kid, that just read as he kills kids. There was this sense of not being really safe in the world. He was the boogeyman. Like when, you know, my friends and I would try to scare each other. That's the term we would use. The Green River Killer is going to get you. And so the fact that after 20 years, they finally did catch him through a kind of like astounding and diligent police work. I just was just so fascinated by that and fascinated by the impact that that had on my growing up, the bigger mythology of it, the bigger story. But like I'm fascinated just in the last year, the way that so many investigations are using ancestry sites, right, to finally identify some of these killers that they've had DNA on for so long. And one of the people they recently identified and arrested in January is a guy who killed a young woman named Mandy Stavik, who was a year older than I was um, in Bellingham, and she was killed when she was 19. So I was 18 and she was home before Thanksgiving break from college. And went out for a run with her dog, and the dog came back a couple hours later. And Landy never did. In that case, they found her body a couple of days after that. She had been raped and murdered, and it was a uh, you know really galvanizing for that community. And a lot of people at the time thought it might be the Green River Killer, but other people thought it was somebody closer to home. It was scarier, more unsettling, right? Because it's this small community, and that means it's somebody you know down the street. It's a neighbor, and Crime Stoppers came to town to film a, you know, a reenactment of the crime that they would put on TV to try to get people to call in tips. And they cast me as Mandy Stavik because I looked so much like her. Oh, wow. And so they took me to her house and I met her mom. I ran the route that she ran with her dog, literally with her dog. This dog who totally knew who did it, right? And couldn't say because he oh, was a dog. That's fascinating. And it was really, yeah, like obviously a really intense experience that I think had a profound impact on me in ways that I didn't even really understand at that point. In my first thriller, all of these girls are, are murdered, these teenage girls who look like Mandy, and they're all found like in the same circumstance, down to just tiny little details that I didn't even realize that I was repeating until after the book was done. And then I was like, oh God, like I see what I'm working through there. Uh, but anyway, they finally, after, yeah, 20 some years, they identified the guy and it was a guy literally down the street. It was a neighbor. It was a guy who had, you know, was still just down the street from her mom.
0: I've only heard of it through Dark Horse's graphic novel that was out. Oddly enough, it's being resolicited again, second printing this month. So Oh, the Green River Killer? Yes.
1: I love that graphic novel. I think that is amazing. Yeah, by Tom Jensen's son, right?
0: Yeah, I'm actually working my way through that. I I downloaded a copy because there was a sale, so I I snagged a copy. But if people are interested in learning more about that, it's being solicited again, so that's one to check out. But did that influence – now, when you said your book –
1: Yeah, Heart Sick was my first thriller, yep. The Green River Killer definitely influenced that series. There's six books in that series. This cop is uh, the head of a task force that has been looking for a killer for a long time and the way way that kind of gets into your head. But those six books are kind of a twisted love story between a cop and a serial killer, but very much inspired by literally uh, an episode of Larry King. I saw when I was pregnant with my daughter and they (laughs) finally caught the Green River Killer. (laughs) They finally caught him. And he cut a deal where he agreed to tell them where more bodies were, if he would get, you know, life instead of the death penalty. And so these cops, many of whom had been on this task force for 15 or 20 years, which is incredible. Like that's, you know, your whole career, right? You respond to like one homicide early on and then like that's the only case you work the whole rest of your career. They finally catch this guy. And they really wanted to bring peace to the families of his victims. And so many families didn't know if the Green River Killer was responsible for their missing daughters. So the cops cut this deal and they would go and they would sit with Gary Ridgway, the killer, and try to get him to tell them where more bodies were and to admit to some of the crimes specifically, you know, beyond the ones that he had admitted to. And they had this footage in this episode of Larry King of one of the cops sitting with Gary Ridgway in this interrogation room. And they seemed like old friends, right? There was this conviviality mm-hmm. and this lightness to the way that they were talking. I had at the same time underneath it all these levels of manipulation that, like, I was just fascinated by because Ridgeway had been a suspect from you know, like, really, really early on. And so they'd known each other for a really long time, right? They had both shared this in a kind of like really sick way. They had shared this experience of all these crime scenes. They couldn't share with anyone else, like Mm -hmm. both of their families, right? You couldn't share that with anyone else, but these two guys had shared that. Uh, And so they did have this history and this kind of weird intimacy. And that also it was this incredible power struggle of obvious, like trying to, you know, manipulate the other into like giving the other what he wants. I loved that relationship, and I thought I wanted to see that relationship but with one of the characters as a woman because it just added a kind of sexual element that seemed more, you know, was even more obvious. And since I was pregnant and crazy and hormonal, (laughs) it seemed perfectly reasonable that I should write this book, so I did.
0: (laughs) Now, besides actual cases of serial killers and murderers, have you watched other TV series, fictional ones, that help to fill the well of your inspiration? Like, for example, have you watched series like Mindhunter or uh, true detective?
1: Yeah, I've watched true detective, but not Mindhunter. I've read the book that uh, that is based on, like, I love TV. <laughs> I think there's some great, I've always loved TV. There's some, obviously some really excellent TV now, far more than a single person can possibly watch. Like, I just love stories. I love great stories. And if that comes in the form of a comic or a graphic novel or a TV show or a movie or a book, it doesn't matter so much to me as long as it's good. At the time when I started writing thrillers, I was super into Wire in the Blood, Robson Green, the um, housewife's heartthrob, I believe he's called, (laughs) in England. Uh, But I was obsessed with that show. And I, it had like either like six episodes or whatever, right? Because it was uh, British the first season and I uh, plowed through them and then I started reading the books. They were based on books by Val McDermott and I read all of those. And then there were only three in that series at the time. And like, I've told Val McDermott this, like if there had been a fourth book, I would not have written mine. Like I needed to write a thriller because I felt like somehow it would be easier to write a thriller that would entertain me rather than somehow like risk picking up a thriller and it not being as good as Val McDermott's books. Again, I was pregnant, so not thinking clearly. <laughs> <laughs> but it all turned out fine.
0: <laughs> now, uh, you're also a comics enthusiast. What was the first comic book that you read?
1: Oh, that's a good question. Probably Richie Rich. <laughs> oh, wow. Richie Rich and uh, Scrooge McDuck. Definitely, those were my earliest comics. And then, of course, a lot of Batman and Wonder Woman and those kind of comics, a lot of like early DC. And then I moved into Marvel in middle school uh, and got really into X Men and Alpha Flight and that kind of like being a Chris Claremont era of X Men. And I had a cousin, my cousin Jason, who was a big comic nerd and actually. Went into comic book stores, which as a a girl, like I never really felt comfortable doing, never really felt welcome doing that. So he was sort of my supplier, my dealer, and kept me in comics through middle school. And then right from there, I went into the sort of Neil Gaiman stage. And then for a a long time, you know, probably 10 years, like I read fan graphics comics. I went into like, I read a lot of alt comics, Mm -hmm. so-called alt comics. I didn't read superhero comics for like ten years or so. And then I was brought back into that world with Alias, Brian Michael Bendis's series about Jessica Jones, which I read like this luck would have it. I went back into a comic book store and that was the first thing that I bought. it was just like the, the first issue of alias. And I read it as it came out and and then that led me into all of the stuff that he was doing in terms of like the ultimate Spider Man and all that. And you know, alias in particular is one of my favorite books, one of my favorite you know, novels, graphic or not, comic or not. like It is so great. And at the time, because of the way that Jessica Jones is drawn in that book, drawn from life models, from photographs, she stands and moves like a, an actual person, like a, a woman actually stands and moves, which I had never seen before. Having grown up, reading superhero comics where women don't stand like the way women actually stand, right? They stand with, you know, their tits to Jesus, as Mm -hmm. we say. (laughs) (laughs) And I found it so powerful to, like, see this character who is like a hero, but also, like, good like a person. Like, obviously, that alias is such a sort of valentine to the kind of, like, Marvel comics that Bendis grew up reading, which I also grew up reading. But, look, I just loved that. I loved it. And that, yeah, brought me back in.
0: So that was the game changer for you. Yeah. And then eventually... You wrote Mockingbird for Marvel, which highly acclaimed, nominated for two Eisners, Best Series and Best Writer, right out the gate. That's amazing. Yeah, right? And I know comic fans will probably recall some of the buzz around the cover with Bobby Morris asking about my feminine agenda. I remember hearing all the buzz about that. I'm not going to rehash all that old history, but I will say this, that that was like, what, three years ago? And yeah. now we have this whole gate thing rearing its ugly head Now we have reports of women creators being threatened by bullies of cons, and I've heard this firsthand from some of the women at cons that they've had problems with people coming up and trying to intimidate them. What the heck is going on? I don't get it. Embrace change because whenever you started reading comics, those books were different, right? So, what you're reading is different and you're happy with it, so change is part of the process. When I say you, I mean people who read. In your opinion, as a mature intelligent adult (laughs) what can we do (laughs) what can we do to stop all this hate towards new creators who are women lgbtq contributing to the arts and speaking with their own voice and actually reflecting what's going on around us now what can we do to stop some of this hate flying around what do you think we could do
1: i can speak personally i think we just have to keep showing up right and that's i mean that's The thing that I kind of came to, it's a lot easier to stay off the internet and to uh, not make yourself vulnerable, but we have to show up. Like we, you know, like we can't let them win because it is just, it is a small group of people. (laughs) Like most comic book readers are like not only great, but like some of the kind of greatest people you ever want to meet. Like it's a great community that is made up of people who really love story and who, uh, who are, like, really enthusiastic about their mythologies and about sharing their mythologies, right? Like, Mm -hmm. I think most comic book fans can't wait to share a comic with somebody, (laughs) right? They're evangelists for comics. Uh, And then there's this small group that is, you know, angry and scared and defensive, and they all have Twitter accounts (laughs) and a whole (laughs) lot of time. (laughs) And so they have this outsized voice. But even during all of that, the buzz, as you say, um, about Mockingbird, even sort of in the throes of it, it just made me more committed to writing comics. And honestly, it made me personally commit to writing more comics. And I'm not sure I would have otherwise, like if Mockingbird had ended differently, I might never have written another comic because I really love Mockingbird. I'm really proud of it. I felt we accomplished what we wanted to accomplish with that in terms of story. So I don't know if I would have been driven to write another comic if it hadn't been for that experience, because the experience taught me like above all else that, you know, we need more women (laughs) writing comics and people don't freak out (laughs) quite
0: so Double down on it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, I would definitely say Man Eaters is doubling down. Yes. <laughs> I will raise you. I will see your misogyny, and I will raise you a tampon.
0: Excellent segue. So let's talk about Maneaters being published through Image Comics, and that's coming out September 26th. And basically, we have a mutation caused by toxoplasmosis, which having a cat, having kids, I know what that's all about. <laughs> we had to change Yo, the letterbox. <laughs> yes, I understand. <laughs> I, was, I was reading it. I was like, oh, I get that. So, <laughs> yeah. when girls reached that age, there was this fear that they would turn into feral killers because of this special mutation of toxoplasmosis. And there's a special police unit that's hunting them down. Never read a book like this before. It's pretty wild. How would you dream up this idea? It's so unique.
1: I'm fascinated by toxoplasmosis. I had read an article in The Atlantic a couple of years ago about toxoplasmosis, which is this parasite that is found in cat poop. And it has a really interesting life cycle. It can infect any warm-blooded mammal, but it needs to pass through a cat's gut to reproduce. So it is in its best interest to be eaten by a cat. So it wants to infect an animal that will get eaten by a cat so that it can complete its life cycle. So even though we're all infected, what it really wants is to infect rodents or you know birds, but usually like rodents. And scientists, researchers have discovered that it actually manipulates the behavior of the small rodent. So mice are fearful of cats, right? It's in their genetic sort of self-interest to avoid cats. And if they're infected with toxoplasmosis, they lose that fear. They lose that inhibition. And they actually have discovered that mice who are infected are attracted to cats. They're drawn to cats, hmm. which really like increases the likelihood <laughs> that they will get eaten yeah. right, by a cat. Right. Now researchers are looking at how toxoplasmosis might affect actual human behavior as well. And there are lots of different theories about that in terms of how it affects our risk taking. So right there, like, I think that's really interesting, like looking at this single cell parasite that can affect behavior that, you know, we're not even aware of. So I also wanted to explore something like a story that looked at how um, the experience of being female in our culture at this particular moment, and I think that Man Eaters at its core, is a book about female adolescents, and teenage girls can be real monsters. <laughs> so I was sort of like just taking that metaphor and unpacking it. I also am a big fan of the 1982 film Cat People, oh, yes. <laughs> Natasha Kinski. Mm-hmm. And so that, I'm sure, played into it as well. That whole idea of the panther monster is representing um, female sexuality. I think it's really interesting, and I wanted to... I wanted to look at that trope from a female point of view. It's a satire and it's a horror comic and it's a mystery. It's also a coming of age story, but it's all from this character, Maud, who's 12 years old. It's all from her point of view. So in Maud's world, it's terrifying that girls sometimes turn into ferocious cats and kill their families, but it's also terrifying to go to middle school. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's all sort of equivalent.
0: By the end of the issue, you're going to want to read the second issue because things are just getting started in the first one. Tell me about the artist Kate on the series. What do you know about Kate? What should we know about the artist?
1: Well, it's Kate Nansik, who uh, was the same artist that I worked with on Mockingbird. I actually reunited the entire creative team. So it is the same artist and same colorist and same letterer as Mockingbird. Ah. Yeah. Kate is in Poland, which is funny because I'm in Portland. So there's only one one letter difference, (laughs) but it's nine hours time difference. Mm. (laughs) So she's perfect. I've only met her once because obviously she lives on the other side of the world. And so we communicated an enormous amount of time, like via email, but didn't meet during all of Mockingbird. And then I was at a Comic-Con in Spain that we were both brought out for. And I got to hang out with her for the weekend And it was really fun because as it is to meet somebody that you have a relationship with uh, online uh, and then, you know, get to know the actual real person was super, super fun. And like I came back from Spain knowing that I wanted to work with her again. And that's when I kind of, I guess, doubled down in terms of putting the whole team back together, which took some doing because it's a whole bunch of freelancers and they all have other jobs and other projects. It took some coordination to bring everybody back together. But I'm really glad I did.
0: So the timing of this—you've probably had this story together for a while, but since you wanted the same group back together, you had to wait. So how long were you waiting from when you wrote to getting everyone on the same page, so you guys, having all worked together before, can just hit the ground running? Like a year. Mm.
1: It seemed to take longer than I wanted it to. Okay. <laughs> longer than it should. But you know, it's worth it. The first issue comes out at the end of September, but. We are four issues in. So we have been working during this time. You know, like we're banking that so that we're sure to come out monthly.
0: Well, the first issue I can say was great. It was ferocious and fun. And I love the way Kate drew that. What would you call it? Like a dad blueprint or a dad diagram?
1: Yeah. I thought that was so clever. <laughs> can you relate to that as a dad? Yes. I
0: really thought that was hilarious. And I love that. <laughs> People, when they read the book, they'll see what I oh, mean. It's great. It's a great page.
1: I live with a 13-year-old girl. I have a daughter. <laughs> and I live also with her father. And so I see a lot of father-daughter dynamics that uh, I think definitely I tried to capture in this comic.
0: And that's not all. You're on a roll because since we've arranged this conversation, there's another announcement out that you're working on the return of the Vision series for Marvel with Abby Mark.
1: Yes. <laughs> Very true. Yeah. The husband and I are working on a six issue run of The Vision, and it's a follow up to Tom King's run on The Vision, which is spectacular. And anybody who has not read that should stop what they're doing right now and read it. I don't know what I was thinking, honestly, because it's so good that we will only pale in comparison. <laughs> <laughs> but it is also, like, interestingly enough, a father daughter story because it is about Vision and Vib, our, our version, because of where Tom King leaves off <laughs> um, his. It is a father daughter exploration and more from Vision's point of view than Viv's, um but some of the challenges of having a teenage daughter.
0: Are you nervous at all about following in Tom's? Because this led to Tom doing Batman, you know? So, <laughs> <I> yeah, mean, <laughs> yeah, I know. No pressure, right?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's amazing. He's oh, really he good. Is.
0: I'm looking forward to this continuation of it, the next step. Tell me about your artist, Aud Koch.
1: She's new and fabulous. She actually lives in Portland, which is kind of cool. <laughs> I'm used to working with somebody in Poland, so it's cool to have an actual <laughs> like artist I can talk to and see in person. She's really you know masterful at capturing really true expressions, I think that there is such a temptation in comics, in superhero comics, to, you know, kind of prettify people's expressions so that we don't see their face, you know, crumple the way that we would in life. And there's something that she does that I think gives characters this, like, exquisite vulnerability and kind of truth, just finding that exact perfect moment of expression that uh, like it really knocks me out it's a really kind of fresh cool style we really wanted somebody who could draw a really convincing teenage girl and also draw like a superhero right who could do both the kind of like domestic side and also the superhero side and she can she's going places that kid this is my prediction like i think in a year She's going to be drawing some of the biggest titles at Marvel.
0: And if you want to see the art, folks, it's in previews. So there's a couple of pages in there so you can see exactly what Chelsea's talking about. And also check out Maneaters on September 26th. And now I have some fun questions for you if you have some time to answer them. All right. When you find a chance, squeezing a little bit of me time, what do you like to do for rest and relaxation?
1: I really like to scooter. (laughs) (laughs) I like to take electric scooters out. They have three um, different brands in Portland. And uh, I have an app on my phone that shows me where these electric scooters are. And they just look like Razor scooters, like a kid would have only they're electric. So you can sort of ride along and they go about 20 miles an hour. I look at my phone. I see where the nearest one is. I walk to it and I use my phone and scan it. And then I ride around. I literally will do that like a 10 year old kid in the middle of the day when I kind of just need to get out of the house. Like I work at home. I uh, am on the third floor of my house right now. I have my office up here and I work in this highlighter pink attic loft (laughs) and I'm here all day right and sometimes I go a little crazy Mm -hmm. just from kind of being alone and being sort of stuck in this one highlighter pink room and it really helps to just kind of get out and go into the world Uh, so I scooter around and I'll just you know spend 20 minutes scootering and then come home and get back to work. But as I was telling you before we got started, I was in a scooter accident yesterday. So I have yet to uh, get back on that horse.
0: I just want to clarify, you were riding it, you weren't hit by one. <laughs>
1: right, I, was, I was hit by my own scooter, which I was riding, which is somehow even worse.
0: <laughs> now thinking back to when you were around 10, 12 years old, What pictures or posters did you have on your bedroom wall?
1: I was a subscriber to World Magazine, which was like a National Geographic magazine for kids. Yeah. And every issue came with a map or some kind of poster of an endangered animal in the middle. And my walls were covered with those, with posters of pandas and, you know, maps of Africa. It's something actually like I loved that so much the act of carefully pulling that. Poster right would be folded in fours and kind of held by a couple staples right at the middle and it would it would take a little bit of craft to get that little staple out and then to like pull it out and then to unfold it and see it all at once. The first time you could see the poster was that once you got it out and were able to unfold it. I love that feeling and I really I really want to replicate that in Man Eaters. Some sort of poster or some sort of like special insert. I think that was so fun.
0: Now at that same time. What were you listening to, music-wise?
1: Liza Minnelli. (laughs) (laughs) Really? Yeah. I was a huge Liza Minnelli fan when I was 10 years old. In fact, I was such a big Liza Minnelli fan that my mom got me a ticket to see Liza Minnelli in Seattle at the Paramount Theater. And my mom drove me from Bellingham. So it was like an hour and a half drive. I wore my Easter dress, and she took me to the Paramount and dropped me off (laughs)
0: because
1: she'd just gotten one ticket. And it's this grand theater, right? You can imagine, you know, like red velvet seats and very fancy. And I went in and I got a program and I went to my seat, pretty good seat in the middle, kind of like a third of the way back. And I watched Liza Minnelli perform. And afterwards, my mom uh, was in the lobby and we went around and we waited at the stage door in the late rain for an hour And Liza Minnelli then came out, and she was in this yellow sweatshirt that said Manhattan in green letters across the front. And she was with this guy who had a beard, and this limousine pulled up, and she walked right past me on her way to the limousine, and I was so overcome that I lunged for her. (laughs) (laughs) touch her like when people see the pope or the Beatles, you know what I mean? <laughs> just Like right and they just you just need like, I couldn't like I just had to touch her like she was holy and I lunged for her and I got my hand out and I touched the sleeve of her sweatshirt at her elbow as she walked past <laughs> oh
0: man brush with greatness
1: <laughs> <laughs> yep I still have the program. It's framed in my living room.
0: (laughs) Oh, good for you. That's a great memory. That's wonderful. I have a couple of hypotheticals for you. You're stuck on a deserted island. If you could only have one book with you, what would that one book be?
1: Probably Infinite Jess, David Foster Wallace, because I have never been able to finish it, and I feel like I would be forced to finish it in that situation. (laughs) And it's a book I really feel like I should read. It's my husband's favorite book. Like, I love David Foster Wallace's, like, his essays, but that book, I've never been able to penetrate further than like 100 pages in. And it's incredibly dense and rich. So I feel like I could, you know, if I had a good a week on a desert island with nothing else to do, I could really learn to love it.
0: Okay. other hypothetical. A toy company says, Chelsea, we want to make an action figure of you. What would be your accessory that speaks to who you are? A corgi. A Corgi. All right.
1: Pembroke um, Welsh Corgi. <laughs> I was ready for that one, right?
0: <laughs> yes. I've been that some
1: thought, actually.
0: <laughs> now, when you're kicking back, what is your beverage of choice?
1: Um, Chardonnay. Let me preface that, or at least notate it. I like to think of myself as a Pinot Noir drinker. Like, I think Pinot Noir drinkers are superior to Chardonnay drinkers. <laughs> But Noir uh, started giving me migraines, and I had to quit it, and so now I'm a Chardonnay drinker, but with apologies. Okay,
0: understood. Good.
1: I don't want people to get the wrong idea.
0: Now, my final question, this is probably the toughest one. What is the one question that during an interview you have not been asked, something that you want people to know about you? that they just don't know, and no one's ever brought the subject up.
1: You know what's hard about that question, honestly, is that I get asked it so much. Mm. The question, like what is the one question nobody's ever asked you? I feel like my soul has been so thoroughly investigated (laughs) that I don't know that there is something that I want asked. I think the stuff I haven't talked about is stuff I don't want to ask, right? It's the stuff that I want to keep private.
0: Sure, well let me position it this way. Is there a passion topic of yours outside of writing and comics?
1: And corgis, outside of corgis. And
0: corgis. Um, mm-hmm.
1: And chardonnay.
0: You can call it a passion or a cause, something you want to speak of or promote, or throw your support behind.
1: One um, organization that uh, I would really like to partner with, with man-eaters, um, and readers will, I think, know why, is an uh, organization called Period Supplies Tampons to women who are on assistance or are houseless and need them. One of the kind of weird rules about tampons is that they're considered a luxury item. Food stamps or the, the equivalent of food stamps that doesn't cover them, which is something I think is
0: pretty kind of sexist. And- well, I think a guy made that rule.
1: <laughs> yeah, it was like seriously, it's in everybody's best interest, yes. okay, they get tampons to anybody who wants them. I support organizations that uh, do what they can to try to correct that in any way they can.
0: That's a very good one. <laughs> Chelsea, we have majors coming out through Image Comics September 26th. Chelsea, thanks so much for being on Creator Talks.
1: Thank you. It was fun.
0: And so it was just days after this conversation with Chelsea that I read Marvel Comics had abruptly canceled her series, The Vision, after several issues were already completed. No explanation was given by publisher Marvel Comics for the cancellation, and so I reached out to Chelsea for her thoughts and feelings on how Marvel handled the situation. So, Chelsea, we just talked about a week ago about The Vision. I read the news that it was canceled. What can you share with us? What happened? What do you know?
1: They heard that I had done your podcast. Chris oh and
0: the next no, thing <laughs> no. it's me oh,
1: no. <laughs> no I don't think so maybe no, 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 I, don't. I, <laughs> I, I, I doubt that bird. <laughs> <laughs> they're watching us right now yes, I can <laughs> Marvel um, got in touch uh, last week and uh, said that they were killing. I feel like canceling isn't even really the right word (laughs) for it since it never came out. It was merely announced and worked on. So, yeah, I prefer like, I guess, more violent terms, killing or slaughter, murdering. They murdered (laughs) the comic. It is a very difficult topic because I really like all of these people. I like everybody at Marvel. I really like my editor there a lot. They're all kind of gobsmacked you know, it is a weird business. And this kind of thing is, it happens. I think it's really unusual for it to happen quite like this. I guess the the thing that I um, found the most difficult is that they really wanted me to not talk about it. (laughs) And I don't, I'm not good at being told to be quiet. I feel like there are so many freelancers. I mean, obviously, this is an industry made up of freelancers. Most of them can't speak up when they're told not to, because they need the next job. I guess I was just sort of done with that. And I wanted to speak up on behalf of everybody because I think it's worth drawing attention to. It's really sad to not be able to share this story. It is really sad for a lot of reasons. I really, truly believe it was really good. And I really, truly believe like everybody did amazing work on it. It was really obviously important to me because it was something that was this product of our family. But, I think it's also just really important to draw attention to the weird kind of expectations of freelancers and the the implicit and explicit kind of demands on how we behave and the protections that are granted and not granted. You know what I mean? Like being asked to behave like an employee and yet not given the usual protections that go along with that. That's not the editor's fault. at Marvel. it's not anybody's fault. It's an institutional problem, And institutional problems don't change. Unless we start to point them
0: out. It sounds like the decision was made at a very high level. From what I understand, it didn't fit in with their plans. But I've seen books canceled before they come out based on the numbers, based on how many were expected to sell through Diamond. But they didn't even have that information yet. And I know this is something that people really wanted to see. And I think it was really important for you to work on it. And you had a great creative team. And it's the kind of diversity they want to bring to their line and attract new readers too. And to say it doesn't fit, there's always room for a book like that. Even if you have other plans, you already had some of this completed. I think the first issue was done and many of the others were already in partial completion. So it wasn't like you're just sitting there waiting to get started. You've been working on this for a while with the team. That's what kind of bothers me too, is that not only do they want you to keep silent, but you put so much work into this, whether they say, hey, here's the money for the work you did so far. We're just not going to do it. It's still, there's a part of you in that. You can't separate that from the work.
1: It's two years of work. And that means for me, a frustration is that that's two years that I could have been doing other work, Mm. (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. That I could have had an opportunity to have a voice and I guess take advantage of the platform that was bequeathed to me in a really kind of traumatic situation. I regret that. I feel guilty about that. I feel guilty that I have wasted this time on a project that will never see the light of day.
0: Well, you should not feel guilty.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I believe them when they say that it is about the creative direction in the sense that it was not what we did with the characters. But I think the plans that they have for those characters just changed in the last couple of years. And there was not maybe some communication that maybe should have happened (laughs) internally. Mm -hmm. Uh, That was the first question I asked was, what are the numbers? (laughs) And they had had the initial numbers in, but not the final numbers. Nobody could give me or would give me that information, though I was assured that that was not a factor. I don't believe that. I think the numbers must have been low. I think if they had been through the roof, they would have put it out because it's such a waste not to with so much of the work done of a six issue miniseries. It seems like a really strange business decision, but it's a strange business.
0: Do you think they put enough promotion behind it leading up to it?
1: I don't know. Like, I, you know, honestly, I think that, that is a book that would have done really well in trade, just as Tom King's vision had, especially because it was six issues. So it's kind of a perfect little, you know, nice arc. It's all self-contained. I don't understand why they didn't just say this is out of continuity and, you know, kind of something special and Don't confuse it with maybe what you're seeing elsewhere in the MU. Or alternatively, just kind of like put it out and buried it. (laughs) That would have been the really smart thing to do. (laughs) But they just made a decision in the star chamber and we all have to live with
0: it. On the face of it, it looks to me like there was some miscommunication and maybe just some poor management. If you've already gone that far into it and someone hasn't communicated that to you, someone's not talking to somebody else and it's not getting back to the right person because this should have never been a surprise.
1: We don't know. It could be that they just, you know, had somebody walked in and had this really, really spectacular idea to like turn Vision into a truck (laughs) or something. (laughs) (laughs) And they just all were so dazzled by that. And they all made plans uh, around Vision being a truck and then (laughs) realized that he was not a truck in our series. And so it wouldn't work. I really don't know. Uh, what happened. But again, my problem is with Marvel, the company and the institution. It is not with the people as much as the people always seem to make an effort to remind me that they are the institution. <laughs> but I think that's not true. I think that you know complacency kind of breeds this institutional bias. is isn't good for anybody. And I think especially right now, it's important to just
0: speak out the institution is made of people i mean someone has to make the decision these things are not automated and i'm just speculating we're both speculating but if there is some knockout idea that came along great you know they could still do that just continue with yours and then after that the next thing's right and queue ready to go i don't think that would bother anybody i don't know i'm not an insider i don't know what's going on there what can you do differently now to protect yourself from that happening again
1: well i won't work with marvel again and that's not me like I think they won't work with me, let me phrase that. (laughs) I think that Marvel certainly is not interested in working with me at this point. I mean, there are no protections. It is, I think, just the way of the business. I think that it dragged on a long time, those two years, and maybe I should have seen the writing on the wall and walked away from it sooner, like seeing that maybe somebody that the company was not as enthusiastic as the kind of response I was getting immediately. Somebody delayed that project again and again. I think there was maybe, there were just people who maybe never really liked the idea of it from the beginning. I think that's possible, too.
0: But again, I don't know. On the upside, you do have Man Eater coming out through Image. Everybody who planned to buy The Vision should buy two copies of Man Eater. <laughs> Make up for it. <laughs> that. right.
1: One to read and one to bag and board. Man Eaters couldn't be more important to me, right? Then, like, everything that I wanted to do with that comic feels even more essential <laughs> in the last four days. Uh, so I'm really glad I have that. I am very sad that everybody else I worked with On the vision. They all have other projects, but there were so many really talented people, and especially Odd, the artist. This is kind of her big break, and she did great work. And I hate to see that wasted or I hate to see it languish, but she, she will do something else and it will be marvelous. So, Odd Coke, remember her name, everybody. And when you see it again, order her comics.
0: I hope to see her again, and I hope after man Eaters we see more from you again through Image or any other publisher, small publisher or, you know, medium-sized publisher, but it, it won't be Marvel.
1: Yeah, I don't think so. It makes me very sad. My daughter's middle name is fantastic. <laughs> Like, we are Marvel fans. We are Marvel partisans. We are, you know, there's DC people and there's Marvel people, and I love them both, but we are Marvel people. I feel bad that I have been such a colossal pain in their ass, (laughs) and yet I feel compelled to continue to be.
0: We have to make change, and we can't do it by keeping silent. We see that every day now in the news. People aren't keeping silent. People that have been marginalized, they have to speak out. It makes people uncomfortable? Well, fine. Be uncomfortable. We have to talk about it. We have to get this out there. Otherwise, things will never change.
1: I think that's true. And I think that so much of this stuff, it is made more complicated and maybe more insidious by the fact that these people are really great as individuals. A lot of this stuff just does not occur to them. They're putting out fires, you know, in front of them and they're underpaid and overworked and they're stressed out and they're on a crazy publication schedule and takes a lot of effort to be uncomfortable. It's much easier to try to make the simplest, quietest, safest choice and just hope everybody is on board. But that, I think, is not productive ultimately. And I think comics, it is an industry that is in trouble, certainly like the sort of floppy segment and anything we can do to get people into comic book stores is so important. There are so many people who love comics and don't know it because they don't ever run into one (laughs) in their daily life, even until we kind of chip away at that kind of insular point of view. The people who go to comic book stores, like that group is just going to get smaller and smaller. And that makes me sad. I regret that.
0: The good thing is, at least now we have so many different publishers Offering such a wide variety of comics now, and it wasn't that way when I was growing up. <laughs> there was there was a few, yeah, but, but now there's so many more. There's a
1: ton more to me personally. Comic book stores where I feel really welcome, and I think you know many of the comic book stores that I grew up around they would have loved to be welcoming and just really didn't know how. <laughs> it's not like they were saying no girls are allowed. It, you know they didn't know how to do that, and I love that. There's a comic book store within walking distance of my house called Books with Pictures. And one of the things I love about it is that the comic books aren't in bags. You can just walk in and they have chairs in the comic book store, which like, I never saw as a kid because they never wanted you to stop and read the comic because you would damage the comic. You were supposed to buy it. Like, To go into a comic book store in the 80s and like, stand there and read the comics, you would have been asked to leave. <laughs> this comic book store just has them all out. And cushy chairs and encourages people to just kind of come and hang out and read comics. That's how you develop a love for the form. And I think once you develop that relationship with the material, then like, how can you not love it? Like, how can you not have a pull with?
0: Keep doubling down. Keep doing what you're doing because we need people like uh-huh. you making comics that are so passionate about it.
1: Thanks, Chris. Today, Kelly C. DeConnick announced that she's doing Aquaman for DC, which is going to be fantastic. Wow. So I'm going to put that on my poll list, and I encourage everybody to do that, too, because there are a lot of, as you say, amazing creators making amazing work, and the most
0: important thing we can do is support them. Thanks for coming back and talking about everything, and uh, good luck again with Maneaters.
1: Thanks very much, Chris.
0: Coming up next week, my guests will be writer Kevin Cuff, writer Bob France, and artist Walt Ostley, the creative team behind Metal Shark Bro. They just successfully completed their Kickstarter for the comic. We talk about the comic's strange origin and development and our mutual love of metal music. I hope you enjoyed today's extended interview with Chelsea Kane. You can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, YouTube, and stream the content through Amazon Alexa devices. If you haven't already yet, please take a few seconds to leave a quick star rating for Creator Talks under iTunes Podcasts. A link to the review page is in the show notes. For Creator Talks, this has been your host, Christopher Calloway. Until next time.